Have you heard The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater? All of season one is available now, so listen to find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the tragic comic pageantry that is an American presidential campaign cycle. I am Alex Wagner of MSNBC here in New York. Joining me from our Washington, D.C. studios, Mark Leibovich of The New York Times Magazine and Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine. And this week, we will be joined by special guest, the wonderful Rebecca Tracer, also of New York Magazine. The decks are stacked for New York Magazine, it seems. Okay, I'll get right to it. First up, we're going to talk about the violence at Planned Parenthood and the response of presidential candidates and how this might just might shape the contours of the 2016 race. Next, we will move on to Donald Trump, who has been on a rampage, that a Trump-style rampage, of misinformation, sowing chaos and loathing as only the Donald can. Recently, he's made up stories about the events immediately following the 9-11 attacks, and he seems to be taking every opportunity he can find to offend whomever is in his path. Does it ever stop? And finally, Ted Cruz lets out his inner theater dork on the campaign trail. All that in a little segment we like to call If I Were in Charge. Okay, by now almost everyone has probably heard about the deadly shootings at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado, where at the end of a nearly six-hour standoff, three people were killed and nine others were wounded. Joining us to talk about this and the political response to it is New York Magazine contributing editor Rebecca Traster, who has a big story in the magazine this week about abortion and some follow-up posts about what this does in 2016. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. The Republican presidential candidates took a day to respond to this shooting. And I guess I wonder, first off, did that lag time surprise you? It didn't surprise me at all. I mean, I think that there there aren't a lot of good responses. That, I mean, there would have been better responses than what they managed to come up with, condemning the violence, offering sympathy. There could have been many things that they might have said. But, of course, this attack falls right at the center of a lot of really extreme positions that they've been taking. I mean, they have gone, the Republican candidates have gone so extreme on abortion over the past six months that we're sort of in new terrain where they're actually arguing about rape and incest and life of the mother exceptions as sort of proof of their anti-abortion bona fides. And this is very extreme territory for Republican presidential candidates. There are people who are referring to this as an act of domestic terrorism. It is, of course, a mass shooting. It's an event that hits at the heart of arguments about guns, about terrorism, and about abortion. And I think that few of the Republican candidates probably saw very easy ways to enter the conversation. But it is of a piece with how extreme they've been on abortion. I will say that. Annie, Rebecca points this out in one of her pieces that even after all the sort of alleged selling of baby part videos came out, <sighs> um, polling showed that Planned Parenthood still had a higher favorability than Donald Trump or the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, the Supreme Court, or and the NRA. I mean, th- I wonder if this, in some ways, if Democrats decide to bring this up, the Republican right. rhetoric on women and choice and abortion, that doesn't help Democrats in the long run. I mean, there's so many things that are sad and infuriating about this incident. And, you know, obviously we don't understand completely the motivations of the guy who did this. But it's worth, I think, remembering that the baby parts thing, the selling baby parts, 
was like always completely and totally wrong. Yeah. There were these baby parts, baby parts. I'm not going to call them baby parts, but, you know, fetal research material. Fetal research material. Nobody was ever selling baby parts. Planned Parenthood does not hawk baby parts. That's like ridiculous. To the broader point, I think this could have been 2012. Maybe Mark knows when. When they're like, just just avoid these issues. Just stop talking about that them. That was coming out of 2012. It was coming out of 2012 because they got hit very hard with a war on women rhetoric. Right. right. This was right around the same time they talked about reaching out to Hispanics. Uh, <laughs> this was right around, you know, being more open to the gay and lesbian community. I mean, this was this is all part of the extremely successful, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> campaign they ran to try to reorient their party. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether any of this rebounds on them. Yeah. I and mean, what I think what's really troubling about this potentially is what you see with all these mass shootings is just by way of the response, there's almost a value placed on the victims and the sort of worthiness or even, dare we say, culpability of the victims. I mean, you start with Newtown where you have the most innocent of victims. And then, you know, you have things like this Oregon shooting where it was a Ben Carson who seemed to suggest that maybe they shouldn't have just stood there. Or if I were, if I were in, a, in a situation like that, I would have run at the gun. I mean, you know, somehow just right, bizarrely second guessing. Right, despite the fact that people did actually run at the gun. Just yeah. whatever they did. It's just like, it's unbelievable. And then so... Then in something like this, by their silence, they're, they're almost, I mean, there's obviously, you know, you have to see it as, if not a condoning of it, certainly a placement of, of the victims here as, as somehow more deserving of this, yeah. which is so well, profane. It's also a little bit worse than silence, because yeah. in the, the extremism that they've been exhibiting in debates and these arguments about which one of them is, you know, more purely anti-abortion than the next, they have been trading in really visceral, really violent language themselves. These are guys who've been calling, not only guys, Carly Fiorina is the one who kept pressing this lie about this particular Planned Parenthood video, and she has yet, I think, to really back down on it. These are candidates who've been using terms like barbaric, and, and they've been using the language of body parts. Ted Cruz, who is actually the first, pers- the first Republican to come out and condemn the Colorado Springs attack, had just a few days before celebrated an endorsement that he'd gotten from uh, an anti-abortion activist who had actually called in a book for the execution of abortionists, you know. And Ted Cruz had, just a few days ago, celebrated the fact that this guy was throwing his support behind the Cruz candidacy. So it's, it's worse than silence. They have been amping up a really visceral and intense language of violence and combativeness with regard to the abortion fight that I think makes this a little more palpable than just not saying anything at all. Yeah. And and they use over and over again, the language around abortion from the right has compared it to slavery and the Holocaust. And, and this has been pointed out by a number of people. In parallel, they've also been talking about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, not just as a sort of something we do in the nebulous world of constitutionality, but also to defend one's rights and to protect ourselves from the unseen menace. And you pair those sort of twin things, this notion that abortion is a holocaust and enslavement of the American people of sorts, and that guns are there to be used to defend ourselves. And it's kind of like, it's not that hard to draw a line to violent extremism. I'm not saying that anybody in the Republican race would condone this plan if someone, you know, sort of outlined it to them. But but it puts them in a really difficult position the day after when Mike Huckabee says it was mass murder. This was absolutely unfathomable. There's no excuse for killing other people, whether it's happening inside Planned Parenthood headquarters, inside their clinics where many millions of babies die Mm. or whether it's people attacking Planned Parenthood. It's just a really, really weird line for them to tread. 
It is. And it gets to the kind of like the moral and legal muddiness of it, right? Like it'd be easy enough to come out and say, well, the people who were there were not doing anything illegal, right? Like nothing illegal was happening there. And the guy who shot them, that's illegal, right? But then it becomes so coded in this moral language about the outrage against abortion that it's just like, you know, I agree that the message gets really, really hard. And it's, it's basically despicable, right? That somehow like the moral question supersedes the legal one. I mean, you sort of wonder, I mean, as a thought exercise, what if a Republican candidate just actually came out, not only in in silent, but actually in support of this guy? Would there be any price for this candidate to pay in today's Republican Party when one outrage after another has been either denied or lied about? And, you know, you just have this, this sort of permission structure to say anything as long as it somehow pleases the base or it doesn't displease the base. I mean, hopefully that'll never happen. Well, right. I mean, Rebecca, we don't, I mean, as far as what this guy said, we know that he had some sort of rambling soliloquy after the shooting about too many dead baby parts. Yeah. Yeah. So like, but if he actually used some of the rhetoric around like, this is a Holocaust, this is a slavery and I'm here to stop it. I just, I, I guess I wonder what position that puts candidates in having said this is a holocaust this is slavery and it needs to be stopped well, right but they've also said baby parts right. right they're the ones they're already in that position they're already not not in any way responsible but they're trading in the same kinds of signifiers and language that that this guy you know at least was muttering about who knows what the rest of the story is we don't yet know the story that i wrote this week in new york magazine i'd actually written it and closed it before thanksgiving before these attacks wow and I, I've added to it online so that it reflects the tax. But in the print version, there's the version that was closed before Thanksgiving. And I wrote it because I had noticed that Democrats actually were getting more aggressive on this topic, which is really interesting. It happened in 2012 around the war on women. And it worked for them by most accounts. And they seem to have backed off of it a little bit after 2014 when they lost some midterm races in a big way. But now a lot of the candidates, including Hillary Clinton, including Bernie Sanders, including people like Donna Edwards in Maryland, are talking about abortion in a new way for Democrats, a much with sort of morality on their side. And that's a story that I'd actually written before these attacks. And I think that the response of some Democrats in really being aggressive about this and really fully, instead of just sort of downcast eyes and sighing, you know, words about how abortion is tragic and rare or should be tragic and rare, um, you know, you actually have Democrats really giving full-throated support to Planned Parenthood and going on the attack so that you have Bernie Sanders actually saying in a tweet this weekend, as he did, making a connection to the bitter rhetoric. He didn't call out Republicans, but he talked about the damage that bitter rhetoric can do. That's a pretty aggressive stand. Barbara Boxer said it's time to stop demonizing and stop the witch hunts against Planned Parenthood. Hillary said she stands with Planned Parenthood today and every day, and it's time to stop attacking Planned Parenthood. Democrats are really going on the attack here, and I think that's a sign that Republicans have really backed themselves into a rhetorical corner to some degree on this issue. And so what do you think changed to allow them or to encourage them to do that? Because I think that before, Democrats actually had probably the more popular position, Mm -hmm. you know, but they were quiet about it because people don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. It's something that a lot of people feel bad about their own position even. Right. There are a couple theories about what's changing. One of them is that we're simply getting more women in politics. You know, during the Obama administration, which is featured and the Republican control of the House, there was a really crucial moment 
moment in 2011 when there was one of these hearings about defunding Planned Parenthood when California Representative Jackie Spire got up and described her own late-term abortion. And in the same hearings, Gwen Moore got up and described what it was like being a single mother feeding babies with no money on, you know, government assistance, trying to make the formula stretch. There is this theory, and we've since seen other politicians, including uh, Lucy Flores in Nevada, Wendy Davis in Texas, both in unsuccessful campaigns, talk about their own abortions on the campaign trail in one way or another. When you get more women in politics, you have more representatives who are speaking from personal experience and understand reproductive health issues to be issues that are tied really closely to economic. These are economic issues. These are social, professional, political issues. It's not just some sort of sex-drenched, religion-drenched culture war. There's also the theory that's put forth in my piece by Elise Hoke, who runs NARAL, that there's more sophisticated polling that's being done on this. So that for years we've been told, oh, the country is deeply and irrevocably split, and half are pro-choice and half are pro-life, and never the twain shall meet. But that, in fact, a lot of that polling was done in sort of old-fashioned ways, and that there is the theory that newer kinds of polling, in which you ask different kinds of questions and ask them in specific order, gets you to a situation where, in fact, there may be a split between how we identify personally, like I personally, you know, somebody might say, I personally don't believe in abortion. But if you then follow that up with a question about how do you want legislators to treat the issue, they say, oh, I don't want government making that decision. And according to new polls done by independent polling firms, but commissioned by NARAL and Planned Parenthood, if you ask those questions in a different way, you get a huge majority, like close to 70% of Americans, who want abortion to remain legal. The mysteries of polling, which I'm sure everyone is quite, I mean, given the volatility of this race, Mark, you know, I recall, and I know, Rebecca, you pointed this out in one of your pieces, Hillary's response, or there was a moment in the first presidential debate, I think, mm-hmm. the first Democratic one, where she is so vocal. Oh, she was really yelling. So that time. impassioned. She was super yelling. It was good. <laughs> about government getting involved in abortion. And I remember being really struck by that, Mark, because. I guess I don't think of Hillary Clinton as someone who is really vociferous on this topic, though, of course, we have a sense of where her politics lie. Right. I think it's almost a chicken and egg thing. It's with her. I mean, obviously, I think this is her her true view. I mean, I think that this is where her this is how she's sort of grown up. And this has really been her her view in the through her public life. I mean, I think, you know, the increased vocalness of it now is probably a combination of her saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be less beholden to whatever focus groups or whatever, you know, might have helped me back last time. But I also think that the politics are good for her. I mean, certainly in a Democratic primary, she's determined, and I'm sure, you know, any number of pollsters have determined that this is smart politics and the fact that it, it conforms to her own personal narrative, it's perfect for her. So I don't, it doesn't surprise me at all that she would emphasize it, especially in the primary. And probably in a general, too, I think. Rebecca, she has some of, access to some of that polling that I think you were talking about. I do think she has access to some of that polling. I think she's in pretty <laughs> close touch with, yeah. I, I, in fact, you know, Elise Hogue took a lot of this polling to the campaigns. She's been trying to explain to people that there is a new approach to abortion. And again, I think it matches what's been bubbling up in, you know, with as more women from a wider variety of socioeconomic backgrounds get into politics. We will see how it all plays out in 2016. Rebecca Traster, it's awesome to have you on the program. It's awesome to be on the program. Rebecca's recent article in New York Magazine is The Big Secret of Abortion. Women already know how it works, and you should pick it up and read it. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Stay with us. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. 
Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Search for The Message on iTunes. All right. We are back. And it is Trump time. Isn't it always Trump time? Oh, man. I know. Our, it's, it's basically our show is Trump time, where we discuss right. the latest from the Donald. And, and this week, I don't know, guys, I kind of think that he might be reaching peak Trump insofar as the lies, the misinformation, the bombast, the bigotry. It's really like at unprecedented levels, most specifically around the issue of Muslims and 9-11 and, and whether or not we actually know clearly not that there were thousands of Muslims cheering after 9-11. He has not really truly backpedaled from that in any significant way. And now he's mocking a journalist, the journalist who originally covered alleged accounts of Muslims cheering, and he's mocking that journalist for his muscular disability. The cherry on top, of course, is that Trump is demanding apologies from the media in, for both of these situations. What think we, guys? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, on a personal level, I mean, either of you know Serge Kovaleski? Who I only is, met him once, yeah, but he's, he's just an amazing lovely, reporter lovely and reporter. seems like lovely a really guy nice too. guy. Very, yeah. very good guy. He, you know, worked with him at both the Washington Post and the New York Times, and he's a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah, he is and the journalist in question for those days. He is yes. the journalist in question, yes, who with the disability in question, although I've never actually heard him talk about it. I never knew what the disability was. I knew that he, you know, had some kind of disability. You know, no one deserves to have this happen to him or her, and I don't think it ever has. Is a presidential candidate, serious presidential candidate, ever, like, done something like this? There, I mean, mean look, Joe Biden inadvertently asked a wheelchair-bound audience yes, member to once stand. to stand up. <laughs> yes, he did. But that was yes, inadvertent, and, and that he was, was yeah. He was mortified. Kind of not and he, knowing what was going on. Yeah, no, but I mean, look, it's with with Trump, it's just one thing after another. I mean, you know, does the shark ever get jumped with him? Um, no. There was a Reuters poll that was sort of like a one of those running polls over a five-day period last week that had him dropping 12 points, and I think that would have encompassed the few days after this particular outrage, but... I assume as long as the field is as big as it is, um, he'll he'll have his solid 20 percent. And I guess Frank Luntz came out this week and said that, you know, when he did some work for Trump, there, his supporters actually said there was pretty much nothing he could do or say that would get them off of their support for him. So it's not like he doesn't have a base of, of pretty, pretty heartfelt support. So it's getting a little tiresome, but, you know, it's just me. Yeah. It's my favorite, my favorite recent kind of Trumpism where he's just completely immune to gases. There's this hilarious New York Times story about someplace in Virginia 
Donald Trump set up a new golf course and put a plaque between the 14th and 15th holes, designating it the River of Blood, where many great American soldiers from the North and South had died. It turns out that, like, no such incident happened. It's not, in fact, like, a place that was relevant in the Civil War. There's all these historians <laughs> who are like, we have wow. no idea what this is. But supporters tweeted about it afterwards. It yeah. must be true. Yeah. I mean, and then, so, so Trump, like, in response to New York Times, well, I'm actually going to read this because it's so funny. That was a prime site for river crossings, Mr. Trump said. So <laughs> if people are crossing the river and you happen to be in a civil war, I would say that people were shot, a lot of them. Interesting. He just doesn't. I mean, so as it pertains to this journalist, <laughs> maybe we should play it right here. God. Yeah, the visual is better. But, but since we are a podcast, let us play the sound. Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. I thought, oh, maybe that's what I said. This is 14 years ago. He's still, they didn't do a retraction. By way of, I guess, clarifying what was going on there, he says, I was very expressive in saying it, and they said that I was mocking him. I would never mock a person that has difficulty. I would never do that. I'm telling you, I would never do it. And this is total, like, classic Trump, right? Backed into a corner, he, like, pulls a knife out from his boot and starts, like, waving it around. And you're like, what? What is What? How are we on the defensive now? Like, how, what has happened here? You must here? apologize to me. How, yeah. how, how has this happened? And yet his, his peeps go along with it. They're, like, right behind him. It is, but it's it's like it's like his candidacy is directed by the Cohen brothers. Like the ludicrousness <laughs> just keeps on getting like heaped on. And just when you think that there can be no more ludicrousness, then you know, like there's more. There was even there's in the past week all of these photos of Trump's kids hunting elephants in <laughs> Africa came out. Like, so it's like one of his kids holding a dead leopard or something, and then like a an elephant's tail having shot it. And he claims and to be like, a loyal Republican. And just nothing rebounds. Killing endangered species. Well, I mean, okay, or or say... his meeting with, you know, this week on Monday, he was supposed to be meeting with uh, like a hundred black preachers. Oh, God. That meeting got scuttled and became a closed door meeting. And once again, Trump blamed the media for putting pressure on these preachers who were going mm-hmm. to endorse him so they couldn't come out and make their endorse. I mean, at, this is after, of course, tweeting information spread by a neo-Nazi online that blacks are more responsible for killing whites. I mean, than they actually, oh, than, I mean, it's just the whole thing. Okay, so at what point do we stop wallowing in the, you know, the maddening circular logic of Trump world and Trump the person and Trump the candidate? What point do we allow ourselves to either blame or get bummed out by how, you know, no one's really taking him on like in his own party. I mean, yes, people don't like what he's doing in his own party. But, you know, when Jeb Bush was asked, who would you vote for, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? He actually said that I would not vote for Hillary Clinton under any circumstances. Yeah, bullshit. That's a lie. That is literally I mean, bullshit. That is, I mean, I've, I know so many Republicans, and obviously they don't like Hillary Clinton. They're not inclined to vote for her. But they would vote for her in a heartbeat over Donald Trump. Oh, God, and yeah. Kasich said yesterday, he's not going to be the nominee. I won't answer it. So at least he kind of ducked and, you know, sort of like the stupid, you know, hypothetical. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to talk about it. If I were moderating the next debate, which, which I'm not, unless they all agree to <laughs> come on Podcast for America next week. I would just do like that, you know, by a show of hands. How many of you are committed to voting for Donald Trump if he is the nominee of this party? 
And yes. what would happen? It's I mean, a great you know, debate question. It's a great debate question. For establishment because, voters, or mm-hmm. you yeah. know, a.k.a. sane Republicans, right. the idea that their guy would support Donald Trump is, I think, not a mark in their favor. You would hope not. I mean, that I mean, should be a litmus test. You, you would think he would be radioactive outside of the base of support that is, frankly, you know, enough to get him the front-runner seat in the Republican Party. But one of the benefits of whatever hissy fit they all threw after that CNBC debate was, I think they might have gotten like networks to agree not to ask show of hands questions. Although yes. I don't know if that was ever. And that I was a demand. Just, it was a demand. I don't know if it actually was promised. And and even if I were the moderator, I'd probably just break it because you know the moderator. What are they going to do? Stop me? Yeah. There you go. Hey, if I were in charge, well, actually, no, that's later. Later, everyone. Yeah. Deep teas. I think that... Um, Deep teas. I do think that, you know, because I was kind of looking, because I actually hadn't really done this just because it seems so like a stupid thing to do. But I was like, okay, like what policy positions does Donald Trump actually hold? And like, how would he actually govern? I was surprised that like a fair amount of it is pretty popular. You know, like do a lot of tax cutting and stuff. But it's just like, it's also completely lunatic. Like the more that you think about this guy, like appointing a secretary of the interior and like staffing the White House, it's like delightful and strange. It's like staring in the sun. You just can't look very long. Well, it's delightful insofar as it's like, it requires magical powers of extrasensory (laughs) perception to fathom a world in which Donald yeah. Trump occupies the Oval Who Office. Who is going to be the head of his National Economic Council? You know? like Oh my God. <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, I, I do think, though, I mean, to your point, Mark, about how the rest of the field is reacting, like Jeb Bush can't, I mean, he was very, I think, genteel almost in, in saying that Donald Trump was spreading misinformation. I mean, this is straight up bigotry. It is designed to appeal to the most basest of instincts. And there, mm-hmm. you know, new polling shows that Republicans are three times angrier. Base voters are three times angrier than Democrats. I mean, anger is such an animating factor in the support for Donald Trump. And if I were to believe, I mean, I feel like this moment convinces me more than any other time in this race that Donald Trump could be a Democratic plant because the rhetoric gets so extreme. Mm. It's gotten so comedically awful. And I guess that's like, it's just plain awful. I mean, I'm saying comedically as a freaking right. modifier, but in fact, it's just awful to the point that these, the rest of the field is left in, in a totally untenable position. They want to get some of his supporters. There's no way they can without literally smearing the doo-doo of Donald Trump on their own hands. Yeah, I'm sorry I mean, to put that horrible visual that's, in, that's but fine. it's true. It is true. I mean, I also think you know we talk about anger. Okay, anger is—it's almost like too complimentary a term. I mean, we're all capable of anger. We all have anger. If anger is anger is a part of life, so you can say, "Hey, they're angry and they're fed up with politics." I mean, but it makes it sound, you know, almost virtuous. I mean, I mean, at what point do we just start using words like? hate and yeah you know everyone like always excuses like outlandish behavior is oh they're just passionate i always hate that it's one of my peeves like oh we're just going to excuse that behavior as because they're very passionate yeah no exactly I mean, for Jesus people who Christ. are just like dicks i mean yeah oh he's, he's passionate like that's like <laughs> they are three times more dickish than yeah <laughs> i don't yeah maybe so maybe you know maybe we're a Dick- that gives dicks. dickishness a bad name <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, what is interesting, when he feels vulnerable and he feels scared and he feels like he's slipping in the polls, he does sort of take to more seemingly desperate, you know, yeah. almost bizarre antics like that that sort of speech he gave in Iowa a few weeks ago remember yeah. when it looked like Carson was going to overtake him. So, um, I yeah, hope that we look back and, and the damn elephant tail was the turning point. I lo- <laughs> Annie, you put it out there, man. <laughs> All right. Wow. Speaking of bombast and front runners, you can't mention Donald Trump's name these days without also mentioning 
the name of the senator from Texas, Ted Cruz. And this recent turn in the campaign cycle has seen Ted Cruz doing some very interesting things, namely bringing out his inner theater dork on the main stage. (laughs) In specific, Ted Cruz has been talking about the Princess Bride a lot. And by talking, I mean recreating scenes in front of live audiences straight from the film, doing impressions of Inigo Montoya and Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, Humperdinck, 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 actually came out of his mouth in front of diners at a New Hampshire restaurant. So let's listen to one of, I think, Ted Cruz's more finer, finer statements. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, at uh, a New Hampshire diner, courtesy of our friends at WMUR. One of my favorite scenes is, is when Wesley, the Dread Private Roberts, is brought in to Billy Crystal, and he's dead. Um, and Billy Crystal explains, ah, he's only mostly dead. <laughs> and then he pumps him up with the bellows and says, so, what is it you have that is so worth living for? He presses on his chest and he goes, true love. <laughs> and, and Inigo Montoya goes, you see, he said true love. There is nothing better than true love. And Billy Crystal goes, you're right. There's nothing better. Well, except for a nice mutton lettuce and tomato salad when the mutton is so lean. But that's not what he said. What he said was to blathe. And to blathe means to bluff. So what happened was you were playing poker and he came in. And then suddenly Carol Kane, his wife, runs in and goes, liar! Shut up, witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! Okay, so Mark and Annie, I actually feel like you can glean a lot about Ted Cruz from this. You. Well, Annie, what what do you glean? So I, I, I think that the thing that I glean more broadly about this race is that Ted Cruz is currently like, his media, he has two media cycles right now, right? So one <laughs> relates to the frickin' Princess Bride. (laughs) The other is the fact that he called the Planned Parenthood gunman a transgender leftist activist. Mm. Nice try, Ted Cruz. Yeah. I don't even know how to combine these two things into a single coherent argument about, like, what is up or down or inside or out or whatever. Tony, the the Princess Bride thing reminds me of... um, Modern Family. You know that show, Modern Family? There yes. was like Alex, the sort of dorky um, younger sister. I can't she imagine. A, <laughs> she, she, oh, no, a different Alex. Another Alex, dorky. Right? No, 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 young no. Woman. It, it, well, I don't know what you were like at 14. Very dorky. Uh, really? Oh, were you my. in a band? Dude, I no, I was playing classical piano, of course, because that's oh, what of course, school. being yes, that's <clears> what dork, dorky young women dork. did. Well, you know, but what's interesting though is Alex Dunphy was in a band, and it was called the Electric Light Dorkestra, which I thought was pretty funny. So when I saw the clip of Ted Cruz doing that, I thought of him as a potential singer in the Electric Light Dorkestra, and that's pretty much all I have to add to this. Okay, well here's what I here, I've never okay seen here's Bride. the deep point what? that sorry. Yeah, wait you never you're the one person in America you have children my daughters have seen it i think i yeah i don't think i did you got homework now you have a week to watch it if Ted Cruz has done anything good for america that the Leibovich daughters are soon going to be able to indoctrinate their father into the cult of the princess bride (laughs) real heroes here's what the ted cruz stuff Mm -hmm. tells me and by the way it's not just the princess bride he's also done his impression of the simpsons both bart and lisa and that old shop that old guy that whispered i don't watch Simpsons. okay that's my admission and winston churchill here's what Mm. this tells me In combination, I think, with a point Annie brought up, Ted Cruz is an actor. And Ted Cruz has been acting his way through politics in a combination of sort of bombastic monologues, green eggs and ham and so forth, to, like, the rhetoric he uses. (laughs) And it's, like, 
it's a role for him. I mean, Ted Cruz is a very smart person who is playing to a very uninformed, very terrified voter. And he is pretending to be like authentic. I mean, I think he genuinely is conservative insofar as I think that's where his policies are at. But like, this is all stagecraft. And he relishes it. He loves the spotlight. And he loves kind of being this singular figure like an actor on stage. But don't they all? I mean, isn't that I what think the insincerity is in the surrounding I mean, I think, Ted yeah. Cruz and the cravenness is pretty, uh, it's know. pretty singular. You can look at a lot of the Clinton, old Bill Clinton and John Edwards. And I mean, politics is, is a lot. Yeah, you got to There's act. a lot of acting and a lot of opportunism involved. Yes. But I do think that Ted Cruz is somewhat unique in that, he, you know, he's added a level of quirkiness flourish. to it. I mean, he's yeah, shown, flourish. He has sort of owned geekiness. He has pride in it. He's and, just so dorky. Come on. Can we have a president that t- talks about humperding, comforting, comforting? The problem right. is Well, yes, obviously dorky. the I problems mean, are deeper than that. It is true that he has a certain degree of smarm. Yeah. Totally. I would say that, I'd say Rubio also has some <laughs> smarm. The Donald is yeah. so far beyond smarm. I don't think that we actually have a word for it in English. There's probably like a nice German compound. Smarm word. and Freude. Like <laughs> smarm, smarm and Freude. No, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's... I think Donald has taken, has gone so many levels beyond. I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know how narrative is, everyone's use of the word narrative now. Yeah. Um, it right. used to be just enough to talk about situations. Now we have to talk about the yeah. narrative of the situation. Right. Like Obama can talk about ISIL a lot, but he always is now talking about the narrative of ISIL. So, right. it, you know, we must talk, we must get removed from Mark the actual, Leibovich piece you know, strategy. Coming, coming together right here. You know what? You know, I'm actually, as I speak, I might have to go back to the office and like fill the <laughs> 1,500 words that I have to fill before I this go home a, tonight. This is very this is true, though. Good. We do um, talk about the narrative a lot. There have always been, you know, narratives and police reports and, and courtroom documents and stuff. But narrative has become sort of like a social media-infused, like, snack food, right? I mean, it's like everyone can create a narrative. I mean, you right. have a Twitter feed. This is your narrative. and This is Ted Cruz's narrative, borrowed from Ron Howard? Uh, yes. Uh, well, there is actually a, a band called The Narrative. They're, of course, from Long Island. It's a pretty good band Listen, name. The Narrative, My right? vote's for yeah, The Narrative over Ted Cruz. Yeah. The narrative of the band or like the, the band, band. Or the phenomenon definitely of the not narrative. the Ted Cruz narrative. Your when band, we look wait, back at oh, the sorry. at the narrative of 2016, I wish there were a way to measure how much more lunacy there is this time than last time, because there's there's definitely much more. I would say two to three peak times lunacy. Much lunacy. This makes 2012 look like really normal. And that was a bizarre campaign. All I have to say is never get involved in a land war in Asia. When death is on the line, I'm quoting the movie all wrong, but that's a princess bride nugget (laughs) for all you listeners out there. You know, Tom Nides, the democratic sort of long cooperative, he actually has a movie about himself called The Princess Nides. His daughter, about his daughter. <laughs> awesome. That was the dadliest of dad yeah, jokes. Oh, God, I got a million. Okay, <sighs> what would we right, do if we were in charge? charge? And let's go one by one. Annie, let's start with you. If I were in charge, there would be movies that everybody has to see. I would say that, that Mark has to see The Princess Bride, but recently I met somebody who hadn't seen Jurassic Park, and I was like, what's wrong with you? That's an interesting deal breaker, Annie. Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh, Alex, why don't you go second? I would, if I were in charge, piggybacking off of something that you guys talked about, I think there would be lunacy polling, as in how many Mm. Americans are lunatics or think this presidential campaign cycle has reached peak lunacy. And we do tracking over the next 12 months. If I were in charge, since we are now coming up on the holiday season, in the same way that Europeans have a, how many, like, in England, how many weeks are they, can you have a presidential Three months, I think. Two months? Three months or what? There's yeah, three months. Yeah, it's you have pretty a, quick. Yeah, you have yeah. to call Can it. Can we just and then do, do like two weeks for like leading up to Christmas for 
like all holiday sales, all holiday, you know, so wow. if I weren't, but that's kind of Grinchy cool. of you. Oh, it's totally Grinchy. I'm like, you know what? I'm actually drinking from a Starbucks, Starbucks cup right now, which is blissfully without Christmas trees. What does that show? Am I like part of the war on Christmas? Just Why do you hate Christmas, it? Mark? Because I'm Jewish. It's a real downer. That's what you're saying, right? No. This is. No, no. Ezra, my husband, loves Christmas so much more than I do, and it's because he's Jewish, I swear. Really? Yeah. Because he's Jewish. I love Christmas, but. Alex, know. did you too marry a Jew? <laughs> Sorry. I you married talk- a man of many faiths, Mark. Interesting. And oh, you don't want to talk about this. He's a little astounded and somewhat disconcerted by my enthusiasm for Christmas. For Christmas? What yep. about for Hanukkah? Not as enthusiastic, mostly because I've never had any real luck with the dreidel. Interesting. Okay. We're going to leave it there, folks. On that note. Shalom, everyone. Happy Hanukkah. Shalom and l'chaim. That is all for Podcasts for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Thanks to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers of Panoply. Please let us know what you think of that this, that show, this show, and the other shows. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And please, tell your friends and enemies about us, too. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover this, our show. For Annie Lowry and Mark Leibovich, hater of Christmas, I'm Alex Wagner in New York City. Thanks for listening. <laughs>